are entering the Freedom Hut. John Kerry, the Iran deal, and the deep state. Also, a federal judge slaps down the Mueller probe. And is Mueller's Russia troll case in jeopardy? Why is the DOJ hiding and lying so much about all of this? And oh, also, are liberals getting ready to credit Kim Jong-un with being a man of peace so as not to give any credit to Trump? That and more coming up. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make Make no mistake. America, you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to The Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Live from the swamp. Here in Washington, D.C., also known as our nation's capital. Oh, a lovely and, and charming place, at least in terms of the weather and the historical sites and museums this time of year. Uh, we have much to discuss, as you might have gotten a sense of in our uh, initial, our, our preamble to the uh, Buck Stravaganza that we're going to have here in the Freedom Hut. Biggest thing right now we're all waiting on is tomorrow, the announcement of whether President Trump will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal or not. He's going to be announcing his decision from the White House at 2 p.m., according to a tweet this afternoon. Who wants to take a guess? I think he's not going to certify it. I'm just going to put it out there. And there's plenty of good reason, plenty of policy rationale for the president to say, you know what? Enough's enough. Let's uh, let's renegotiate some aspects of this deal. Uh, one administration cannot, despite what some courts seem to think about immigration and executive orders, put a pin in that for another time. One administration cannot bind the discretion of another. That can't be the way this goes. And I think that you are likely to see here that uh, the U.S wants a, another another bite at the apple here, wants another shot to figure out something with a uh, within Iran that does not leave so much out of the actual framework of the deal. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because, look, it's the, with this president, you just don't know. Maybe he has teed this all up so that we think that he's going to back out of the deal. When in reality, he'll stay in it, but he's trying to get more leverage. I just I just don't know. But I, I got to put my money. And, you know, this is one of these bets where I feel like I it'd be better to take the the usual pundit position, because you'll remember what I said tomorrow. Right. One of the one of the great one of the great uh, lessons to learn about those who are always making predictions is that most people make predictions that are so far out that whether they're right or wrong, they're only going to remind you of the ones when they were right. And that's a way of enhancing the perception that they're actually good at prediction when in reality they could be wrong most of the time. As you know, I always tell you, nobody can predict the future. I mean, Buck is almost always right, but nobody can predict the future. And this this issue of the Iran nuclear deal, though, we'll find out tomorrow whether he, whether he steps out of it or not. I still think the most interesting component of all this is the carry factor here. Uh, I wrote about this for the the Hill... So it's, uh, there's a piece up on thehill.com today. You can go check it out. 
if you want a little more a little more detail if you like to read the uh, the latest buck editorial uh, and here, here's along the short of it. I, I said that Carrie is wrong in every in every conceivable way here. And I want to walk you through some of this. Remember, this is all about the Iran deal. Carrie is wrong as on the merits. Right. I think that it's a, it was a bad deal. It was uh, poorly constructed, poorly thought out. Way too much of a political motivation for getting it done so that President Obama could have some kind of a legacy. Not nearly enough thought to what will this do long term to other administrations, to the Middle East, to security in the region, to Iranian aspirations about getting nuclear weapons. Not nearly enough attention paid to any of that. So I think he's wrong on the substance. But I also think he's wrong on the principle. And this is an area where I think he's he's even more at fault for what he's doing. And, and if I didn't make it clear enough last week when the story broke, because I dug into this a bit more, you got the former Secretary of State who is acting like a shadow Secretary of State. You know, this is what in, in some countries where they have insurgencies, uh, they'll talk about having a shadow governor, right? Somebody who's, you know, the insurgency will set up its own version of the government that's not the actual government, but they'll try to provide government services. The idea being they create the perception among the population that there is a viable alternative to whatever is actually the government. And that is what Kerry is doing here. He is being a shadow, not governor, but a shadow secretary of state. Not supposed to be doing this stuff at all. You can only have one administration at a time, one secretary of state at a time. And look, he's part of this uh, democracy. I forget what it's called. uh, This organization. It's not democracy now, but it's some other thing. Oh, no, diplomacy now. Or diplomacy works. I don't know. It's some cheesy, cheesy name. And, and they are putting out hundreds of op-eds and interviews. And you're allowed, look, you're allowed to have opinions. Former government employee. I'm a former CIA analyst. I, I got a lot of opinions. I do a radio show every day. That said, I never ran the CIA. And if I did, I wouldn't leave the CIA. And the first thing I do would be saying, "Well, you know, you don't really want to talk to the guy who's actually running it now. You want to talk to me." I want to have a conversation with Buck. And that's this is a big problem, right? With with the uh, the codes of conduct in place, especially for those in the, in the diplomatic world, this causes all kinds of, of confusion among our counterparts. And it shows we don't have a unified front. So, right. So remember, there's different levels here. I think he's wrong in the merits because I think Kerry's wrong that the Iran deal is a good thing that we should keep in place. I think he's wrong on the principle here that he should be even, no matter what he thinks of the Iran deal, that he should be conducting himself in this way. I think that it is uh, diplomatic sabotage. And he's been meeting. This isn't just about writing editorials, whatever. He met with Javad Zarif, I think twice, the foreign minister of Iran. How is he feeling good about sitting down with the other side of the negotiating table from the United States on this one. You know, I understand partisanship does not, partisan politics do not stop at the, at the uh, water's edge. Despite what, what was it, Vandenberg said back in 1947 or 45, I forget. Producer Mike, let me know. 
hate it. Human Google over here sometimes fails. Uh, that being me. I know I should never refer to myself. I'm going to seriously, I, I promise you, I, I know that the universe is going to pay me back for such a preposterously pompous statement. Don't worry. I, I say that with full, I'm going to like trip on a rake outside and, and feel very foolish about myself. Uh, anyway, the politics do not stop at the water's edge. We know that we're all, we're all big boys and girls here. We understand it. But there are limits also to what's okay. It's not a total free-for-all. Disloyalty to American foreign policy is a problem. And undermining the existing administration and the prerogatives of the President of the United States and the Secretary of State in conducting diplomacy as they see fit is an issue, uh, a big issue. And he's also meeting with the Europe, some of our European counterparts. He's had a call with uh, Emmanuel Macron as well as the German uh, German presidents, not to be confused with the chancellor, who, as you know, is Merkel. There's also a German president who's like, yeah, I'm not as I'm not as uh, as amazing as a chancellor, but like I still have power, cool title, you know, president. Uh, and some European officials, uh, European Union officials as well, you know, probably probably caught them in between lattes. So he's running around. Yeah, Vandenberg. I was right. 1947. I was right again. Thank you, producer Mike. But by the way, I'm still going to get payback for for sounding a little pompous. I, I leave the outrageous pomposity to other people on the radio. That's not how I roll. At least I try to keep myself in check. Miss Molly always keeps me in check. She's like, don't try any of that. Don't try any of that. Oh, look at me. Look at me. I'm so I, I know this or I know that nonsense. So don't worry, team. She always makes sure that I know I know my place. Uh. But then you get to the third level of the carry problem. The Logan, the Logan Act. Now I know, before anyone starts yelling at me, Buck, the Logan Act is a bad law. Buck, you've said the Logan Act is garbage. Oh no, it is garbage. Bad law. No question about it. But in advance of this Iran recertification or decertification tomorrow, I think worth revisiting what we see happening here because this is going to be a theme throughout the show. The two-tiered at least today and probably going forward, the two-tiered justice system that we have and how it applies to Republicans versus how it applies to Democrats. How the left has no qualms, in fact, has a habit of weaponizing the law for partisan purposes, while the right and some very well-intentioned people on the right (laughs) Jeff Sessions, uh, are unwilling to see the legal threat for what it is and do what is necessary to protect our side from those assaults. Okay? So that's where, that's important groundwork to, to put in place for the discussion of the Logan Act. Uh, the Logan Act is garbage. Law from 1799, never been pro- Everyone, let's start it this way. Everyone's kind of an expert on the Logan Act now, right? We're all like, oh, the Logan Act, that's such nonsense. You know, let me tell you, the one time they thought about using was actually at the state level in the 19th century. Blah, 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 blah. I think it's from 1799. And it never been used. But why do you know what the Logan Act is? It's an important question. Why, why are you familiar with the Logan Act? Because I know you are. You listen to this show. I know you, you, know, you read the newspapers. You know what's going on. Why am I familiar with it? I'm not going to pretend like I know all these things, right? I, mean, I learned about it more recently, too. You could, if you are particularly slick, say, hey, hold on a second, Buck. Isn't there a funny line in the movie Charlie Wilson's War where Tom Hanks says, oh, I think I might be violating the Logan Act? And the answer is yes. That is a line in that movie. 
Um, thank you, John. Exactly. But unless you happen to be a big fan of Charlie Wilson's War and watch movies on repeat on HBO while you're folding your laundry a lot, um, the realities most Americans know about the Logan Act because it was recently weaponized. Oh, not against John Kerry, and that's not going to happen, by the way. Even though his violation of the Logan Act as a statute, flimsy and unconstitutional as it may be, is way more clear and way more egregious than anything that Mike Flynn did. But the problem with the Logan Act is that it's become quite clear that it is to be kept on the shelf, a dusty old relic that no one cares about or uses until there's a Republican who can be bludgeoned with it. Then it's a statute. Then it's a law. You might say, but Buck, hold on a second. But they don't, they haven't prosecuted Flynn under the Logan Act. Oh, oh, I know. They play dirty, but they're slick. They know what they're doing. Sally Yates, who I've been telling you all along, and you know this, is a much bigger player in the hashtag resistance at the DOJ than we have even yet found out. Clearly, ideologically uh, opposed to Trump in ways that erase whatever better judgment and, and ethics and integrity she may have. Sally Yates, in her congressional testimony, made it clear that she considered a possible violation of the Logan Act as grounds for sending the FBI to go and question General Flynn. We'll get more into that question later on, which is another important thing. Why, why is it that General Flynn, it seems increasingly clear, didn't lie but was prosecuted anyway? But if you are going to use federal resources to investigate somebody for a crime that has never been prosecuted, that you have no interest in prosecuting, how could it be made any more clear that you are a partisan hack on a seek-and-destroy mission? I don't think it could be any more clear. How could it be any more obvious that there was, in fact, a deep state element working against the Trump administration? She said a violation of the Logan Act caused her to be concerned. This was in front of Congress. This is not some theory I've got. Concerned, and that that at least in part led to FBI agents questioning Flynn, which led to them saying he lied, which led, led to his guilty plea. Well, where's the concern now over John Kerry? In advance of the Iran deal, I mean, the foreign policy implications here are quite clear, very obvious. Ah, yes. They've all forgotten what the Logan Act is now. They all pretend it doesn't exist anymore. And you see, this is the way that they play the game. There is no honest, judicious, uh, judicious application of the law. There is no real effort. I had judicious was such a hard word for me to say a second ago. There's no real effort to apply this in an even fashion. They think that they're playing for higher stakes. And so if they have to sacrifice integrity and impartiality along the way, they will. And that's why you won't see a prosecution of John Kerry. That's why you won't even see a questioning of John Kerry under the Logan Act despite the fact that if that is a law that ever had a purpose, it is to prevent exactly what the former Secretary of State did. Uh, but there's a whole lot of other problems we have here. I, I read through the entirety of the transcript from the uh, Judge Ellis Manafort 
hearing last week. This is it's really important, folks. It's really powerful stuff. It tells you a lot about the special counsel. I want to get into that. Also, we've seen more about the redactions that the special counsel or the FBI and DOJ have been requesting from some of these documents. Here's a short version. They're lying to us. They are playing dirty with the American people. They are covering, we call it CYA in the uh, bureaucracy. They're covering their butts. Uh, We've got to get into that and and much, much more. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Team, light them up. We'll be right back. Kerry always has done more harm than good. So it's just consistent with with the way he's operated over the last few years when he was in power and now that he's out of power. The worst thing about all of this is that the Iranians were given $150 billion, which they're using to fund uh, the expansion of terrorism in the most critical part of the world. Kerry should understand that, that, uh, ironically, People are beginning to talk about what he's doing with the Iranian foreign minister and and foreign leaders as falling under the Logan Act, which the Obama administration tried to tar General Flynn with. Yeah, I think that's the much bigger issue here, not because I think the the Flogan Act, the Logan Act, also known as the Flogan Act. That's like a really intense violation of the Logan Act. But... You know, you had all these reporters that were writing stuff about how, oh, the Logan Act, the Logan Act, it's still a law, it's still a law. We can go back and see, I did go back and see it over the weekend. It's astonishing to see them. Well, you know, it's on the books. No one thinks that it should be on the books, but, you know, it's on the books. Uh, but, yeah, Kerry's foreign policy judgment, I think, has always been poor. And he's really a remarkable study in many ways of of just the the, the rise of of tremendous mediocrity within the democratic uh, democratic senior elected ranks you know as a senator uh, i don't know i think carries just a, I, he might be a really nice guy i don't know him at all it's fun very very unimpressive and he also shouldn't be pretending to be the secretary of state i think i'd start with that one so there you have it um we uh, we got to talk about this judge thing this uh, judge ellis throwdown coming up because it tells you a lot about the special counsel and what the doj doesn't want to tell you that's coming up He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. I know we we mentioned this last week here on the show. I didn't really get into the details, though, uh, too much of the details, because it kind of broke when we were on air, right? So I didn't have time to read a 50-page transcript during the show. But I certainly went home over the weekend. This is the kind of thing I like to do. But I'm not... uh, Trying to find, you know, I was so proud of myself. I had to wear a black tie to wedding this weekend. And I'm not, I'm not trying to brag, but I'm going to brag. Managed to tie my bow tie on the second try. Not the first, because come on, right? I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a straight up superhero. But uh, with, with a little help from the mirror, and I was able to get the bow tie the second time. Which for those of you who don't wear bow ties, but you got to do it like once a year, it's a perishable skill. Very tough. You know, and you watch all these YouTube videos, they make it look like it's all quick and slick and easy. It's not. 
Very easy to forget about that. But when I wasn't getting ready for a wedding, which I really thoroughly enjoyed, I um, I, I was reading through this court case. And it's very important. Now, this is just uh, kind of initial motions and motion to dismiss from Manafort's lawyers. And the judge pushed, uh, pushed and poked around quite a bit in the area of, okay, what's really going on here? Because he's the federal judge, Judge Ellis, who is, and I can't say the name Ellis without thinking like, Hans, what am I, a method actor? Put the gun away. Die hard. Uh, see, that was for the, that was like the A-plus level, if you, can, if you can get that quote. But the the truth here is that the judge was looking at what this special counsel was proposing and they're saying themselves and he's saying to himself okay hold on a second uh manafort's lawyers and in, which uh, includes a federal who somebody who had been himself a federal prosecutor for 15 years so you know manafort's hired some some people who they know what's up right they're trying to get this whole thing thrown out they're saying the special counsel doesn't have the uh mandate to do this it essentially doesn't have authority or standing to bring the charges that they are bringing and what you see what you end up finding out about this is that doj is playing all kinds of games here or the special counsel as representatives of doj because they're bringing a case against manafort that has nothing to do as, as ellis points out as the judge points out has nothing to do with collusion with russia any of that this is straight up tax banking wire fraud stuff. That's it. You made money. You hid money. You didn't pay taxes on money. Now, through the course of the transcript from the the uh, oral arguments in front of the, in front of the judge here, it's quite clear that the judge thinks this is a bit a bit strange. Why is the special counsel taking over this case instead of say the Eastern District of Virginia, which should be a court in Alexandria, which handles plenty of things like this. And why isn't this just a standard federal case? Why does the special counsel have control and primacy on this banking slash wire slash tax fraud case that I, I think could send Manafort to prison for like de- decades and decades? I mean, the amount, amount of time he's facing for this stuff is is pretty astonishing when you get into it. And the judge says, I mean, this is all about getting Trump, right? This is, you guys want him to flip, and you want information about Trump, you want to go after Trump. And, you know, yeah, the special counsel's kind of, well, you know, you know, they're kind of, they don't really want to say it. They don't want to go on the record. So, yeah, it's just, that's what we're doing. But it's clear that is what they're doing. So the judge pushes a little bit, a little bit more. Because, and here's what he said, quote, we don't want in this, well, we don't want in this country is we don't want anyone with unfettered power. We don't want federal judges with unfettered power. We don't want elected officials with unfettered power. We don't want anybody, including the President of the United States, nobody to have unfettered power. So it's unlikely you're going to persuade me that the special prosecutor has unlimited powers to do anything he or she wants. Uh, so the judge is worried about this. He's saying, hold on a second. And to people out there who say, oh, book the special prosecutor, they can subpoena and they can grant jury, they can do whatever they want. Yeah, I know. Guess what? Prosecutors could, could put you through hell if they wanted to. Anyone. I don't care who you are. They could put you through hell if they wanted to 
just based on the powers that they have, right? Uh, we, you know, we we're gonna go. We have a confidential source. We got to go through your your tax records. I got to go through your banking records. Got to go through, you know. If they want to get you, they can get you. I keep repeating because I know it's true because I have been in the room when prosecutors and sometimes law enforcement are figuring out is this somebody we're going to get or not. And once you've been around that, you're like, wow, this is pretty. It's pretty crazy. You mean a you mean a terrorism cra- uh, terrorism case is going to quickly turn into a uh, a mortgage fraud case, or is going to turn into a benefits fraud case? Or you know, you go to the list, you're like, oh wow, okay. And now sometimes you find egregious conduct, you're going to prosecute it because it's illegal, right? But other times you're like, so are we are we trying to find a reason to prosecute somebody, or have we found something that it would be unreasonable not to prosecute? I mean, these are fundamental questions about our approach to law and the judicial system. You, know, you show me the man and I'll show you the crime, right? Uh, what's that? Lavrenti Beria, we all, the uh, secret police chief in the, in the Soviet Union. We all know about this. This has been around for a long time. And this judge was, was pushing back on this. And then the judge says, okay, so you're saying that you, you guys can take primacy on this. So let me see the memo that Rosenstein put out there. And this is how that one quote. So your argument that we said this was the scope of the investigation. Remember, this is Judge Ellis to Manafort's prosecute. I mean, to Manafort's. Uh, yeah, the people prosecuting Manafort, the special counsel. So your argument that we said this was the scope of the investigation. But we really didn't mean it because we weren't required by any law or regulation to say what the scope was. I understand that argument, but it kind of invites Come on, man. You said that was it. But I think your argument goes on and you say, look, the May 17th letter isn't the end of it. There's the August 2nd letter. And in the August 2nd letter, it's expanded considerably because it then says Russian government is number one. And then it goes on to the Ukrainian government, which is never mentioned beforehand. Um, you're, now, I know this is getting this is getting in the weeds. I just think I do think this is all really, really important. And, you know, we could talk about, like, Kanye's latest tweets later on or another time. The judge is saying, okay, so you say you have standing here, but you're also saying that you, or you have a mandate here to do this, and but you're also saying that this was laid out in a letter. But then when I point out to you, me being the judge and them being the special counsel, that it's actually not really covered in the letter, you say, well, the letter doesn't bind us. Well, if the letter isn't what creates the framework for the special counsel to operate, what is, in fact, the special counsel not allowed to investigate? And then the, one of the responses that came out as well, their letter is redacted, sir. So, so you, the federal judge, we can't show you in this setting. They will later, they say, in a classified setting, in a skiff, which the judge goes through this whole back and forth with them. But some of the letter isn't even allowed to be made public. They say it's classified. So now a letter that lays out the authorities, the special counsel's position on this is the letter that creates their authority does not limit them. It doesn't really say what they can and can't do. It doesn't determine what their authority is. They can't share what's in the full extent of a letter anyway, and it wouldn't matter because they're not bound by it. So you start to get a you start to get a little bit of a whoa, hold on a second. What is 
really then the full scope of this investigation's powers and authority. And what you would take in response, what, what you would have to say in response to that is, uh, hold on a minute, the special counsel was a creation, right? The special counsel exists within the uh, the within congressional statute and within DOJ regulation. It's not supposed to come up with its own rules as it goes along because the only real check we have on the special counsel is public knowledge of what its mandate is, right? If a special counsel can be can hide its mandate and is not bound by its mandate, then how are we supposed to be able to come together and say, you know what, we don't want it, we don't want this anymore. We, the American people, reject the notion of a which we've done before. It used to be called the special prosecutor, right? And everyone realized, you know, this is a pretty bad idea, so we got rid of it. But now it's like a it's like a zombie idea. It keeps coming back. Oh no, let's do a special counsel this time. Well, who is the special counsel really accountable to? Well, you know, the attorney general, but the attorney general can't really shut it down because it'll look politicized. And what is the special counsel looking at? Well, we can't really tell you because it's secret. I mean, let's really boil this down to its essence. Right now, you have a, an unelected group of appointed prosecutors who define the scope and parameters of their investigation, who keep large portions of their investigation, including the parameters of it and what they're looking at, secret, classified, and are actively engaged in trying to bring down a presidency. If this isn't sounding like a deep state, I don't really know what would. If if this doesn't give you pause, if this doesn't feel like a threat to liberty, I, I don't really know what to say. Um. So and this is one more part of this is from the from the or, from the oral arguments from the court transcript of Ellis versus Manafort's lawyers, quote, the attorney general certainly at points in time could have taken that right back, but he never did. He left it on the books. They promulgate that these regs are controlling the office of this special counsel in a public notice, their appointment order. So they tell the world, don't worry about it. We're not going to end up with this runaway special counsel like we've seen with the independent counsel. When they come to court, they say, by the way, these are not judicially enforceable. It's as if they hoodwinked the United States into thinking this was going to uh, this had anything to do um, with anything else. That last line I had to just ad lib because I couldn't. Sorry. Everything else was legit, though, when I was quoting. The judge is saying here. So the, so this is how the game is played now. And I, if, if this feels like, uh, you know, this is just crazy town, it is. But the Department of Justice sets this up so that they have a document that establishes the parameters of the investigation. And then the American people, who are the real eventual check on all of this, say, okay, that seems fair enough. But when they go to court, the special counsel is like, actually, we're not bound by that. It's kind of a suggestion. It's not a rule. Who thinks that's okay? What the heck are we supposed to do with that? But this is how you have a rogue elephant prosecution going on right now, which is what it is. A rogue elephant entity running around crushing things left and right. Ellis really took them to task over this. That there's a there's a fundamental dishonesty in the way this special counsel is conducting itself right now. There's also a fundamental dishonesty in, at the top of the DOJ and FBI when it comes to what information they want the public to have about this whole investigation. 
thus far, and it is astonishing. I will get into uh, that as well as also, I, I, I sometimes say something intending it to be cynical or, or intending to uh, take a little bit to an extreme just to make a point, and then I find out, oh no, that's not extreme, that's actually what Democrats think. When it comes to Trump and North Korea, that's actually already happened. I can't give you specifics right now, but I will in the next hour. So that's an exciting reason for you to stay around. Um, I'll be right back. The judge here is saying, you don't really care about this. You're just trying to get Trump. And for that reason, I'm wary of this case. Doesn't that concern you that a judge would think that? Uh, that seems to be the judge questioning the motives of the special counsel. Uh, and while, you know, it's certainly within the judge's prerogative to ask these questions, I don't think it really bears on the legal issues. I think that uh, Bob Mueller will prevail in the sense of being able to go forward with this litigation. I don't think there's really any legal question about that. But yes, it is concerning that the judge would express this opinion. Is is it concerning that the judge has that was Adam Schiff and, and, and Tapper over at CNN? Is it concerning that the judge has the opinion or that the judge should have to be in a position to express that opinion because it is so very obvious what is going on with that case? They are prosecuting a wire and bank fraud case that has some elements that are a decade old, folks. Ten years ago. Uh, so. You, you you do want to ask the question at some point, is it is it OK if Mueller uh, were to find something that was still within the statute of limitations, let's say, against anyone from from 20 years ago? And use that to flip them to see if they'll 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 go after Trump. You know, what are the outer what are the outer limits here? I, I just want to know where uh, where they actually fall for the special counsel. You know, this is this is all very troubling. And also on top of that. You have a DOJ and an FBI uh, leadership that don't seem to want to share a whole lot of information with the American people when it comes to what they're actually doing. This is uh, Devin Nunes. Who I know they, they, they hate Nunes because he actually fights back on some of this stuff. But here's what he had to say about Congress, which is exercising its legitimate oversight authority on issues of what the FBI is doing, right? Those are statutory bodies, FBI, DOJ. Congress has the, not just right, the obligation to know what they're doing so that it can do its proper oversight of them. And these agencies seem to think that they can just hold stuff back. You're seeing a lot of this. You know, special counsel doesn't really want to tell a federal judge what's going on with their mandate, doesn't really want to tell Congress what's what they've been up to. Uh, how is that? How is that supposed to work? Uh, play clip two. So we've asked for very important information. It's still classified, right? Mm -hmm. This is the problem with a lot of this investigation. Sure. Because of the way they conducted the investigation, most of this information is classified. Two weeks ago, uh, we sent a letter to Attorney General Jeff Sessions, a classified letter. Mm -hmm. uh, it, per usual, it was ignored, uh, not acknowledged, just completely ignored. So last week, we sent a subpoena, and then on mm -hmm. Thursday, we discovered that uh, they are not going to comply with our subpoena. The only thing left that we can do is we have to move quickly to hold the Attorney General of the United States in contempt. And that's what I'm going to press for this week. I'm going to hold the Attorney General in contempt? Huh. 
Jeff Sessions, where are you, buddy? Give us a call. Tell us what's going on here. Uh, but there needs to be much more of an emphasis on releasing information to the public because here, here's the real bottom line of all this, folks. We are the only real check on the deep state. You cannot rely on the state to do its own house cleaning. Hey, team, no matter what kind of day I have ahead, whether it's going to be absolutely crazy, full of freedom spreading and battling all kinds of insane libs or just sitting back and chilling, I like to start my day the same way with a nice cup of coffee. Hot or ice doesn't matter. There's only one choice for me. Black Rifle Coffee. Black Rifle is veteran-owned and operated, and these guys are all about liberty, individual rights, freedom, the Second Amendment, and supporting our armed forces. Their coffee is also delicious, by the way. So you're not just supporting veterans, you're getting a great product in the process. It is a win-win-win all around. Check it out for yourself. Go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Use the coupon code Buck15 for 15% off. That's Buck15 at checkout. Become a subscriber. Have your Black Rifle delivered like I do each and every month and start your day the same way with Black Rifle Coffee. Go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck to check out more. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One Make, Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show team. Great to have you here. Always. Before I get into all the latest in the uh, political scene, um, just a note about what's what's going on in, in Hawaii. Uh, if you haven't seen it, the footage is is incredible. As in hard to believe, like hard to have credibility. It looks like something that somebody might have created on a on a computer using, you know, image altering technology, also known as Photoshop, right? Uh, but but I, I remember being on the on the Big Island in Hawaii over a decade ago, and uh, I mean even more than that. Gosh, almost twenty year, twenty years ago now, more than twenty. Oh gosh. How the time flies by, my friends. It's over 20 years ago. But I remember I was all excited because we got to go on a little hike. And I was going to see, I think at the time they are saying it was the the world's most active volcano. Or it was something, it's some cool title like that, right? And this is on the big island, also known as Hawaii Island in Hawaii. And I would note that I'm not going to weigh in on what I'm seeing now as, as a a debate among the social justice types as to whether Hawaiian only refers to people of Hawaiian descent and not the, not the, just anyone who lives in the state of Hawaii who are to be called Hawaii residents. That's a thing that I've seen today on social media. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get involved in that one right now. Cause that's just, that's going to be a diversion from all this other stuff. But I remember seeing the, world's most active volcano or, or getting ready to see it. And I thought, you know, this was going to be like liquid hot magma. Like I was going to be able to get up on the, on the edge. Like you see in the movies, like on the edge of a crater and look down and like bubbling hot lava and all this cool stuff, you know, maybe I could, I could take the ring from Smeagol and throw it in there. You know what I mean? You know, I precious, you know, I got to work. It's really hard to do a, uh, my Gollum or Smeagol impression is not very good. But I thought I might be able to take the ring and throw it in, you know, and destroy it. 
destroy it. Um, but that's actually not the way it went. Uh, not the way it went at all. Uh, we got maybe a half a mile away from the most active part of the volcano. And, and then I could see in the distance like a little flicker of, of light that I suppose was actual magma. And that was, or lava. It's, what's it? La- lava versus magma. I got to check this one out, actually. Yeah, that's what. That's right. Lava's when it's above the Earth's crust, magma when it's below. Hat tip to uh, to uh, producer John there. Thank you. Um, but yeah, so I was seeing lava, and from a distance, it just like like a little flash of light, and then you'd see steam, and I'm like, this is not cool. This is not what I expected. The footage you're seeing right now in Hawaii, where they've got thousands of people that have had to flee, and there's toxic fumes and everything. That's kind of what I thought a volcano was going to be. So, you know, it, it took 20 years, but now I've finally seen what they what they mean by this. You know, there is a there is video of the lava actually just moving across a highway and taking a vehicle. And it's it looks like something out of a sci fi movie. It's crazy. So thoughts and prayers to all the folks affected by this in Hawaii. I know thousands of people have been evacuated. Um, I don't think I actually I don't, I don't know if anyone's been. John, has anyone been uh, hurt in this? I, th- I know that there have been homes lost, but I think people have all so far, correct me if I'm wrong, I think so far everyone has been safe. So that's that's the good news. Everyone's safe. But, you know, Hawaii, you know, there's a whole thing about being volcanic islands is that there are, in fact, volcanoes that are involved. And uh, every once in a while we get a reminder of that. So hope everyone's okay out there, but it just made me think about this. Oh, pardon me. Two, two dead from the fumes? I thought everybody made it out alive. Was it from fumes? Do we know? Do we don't know how? Okay. Well, I'm checking it okay, out now. We've we've lost two. Pardon me. I thought I thought everybody had uh, had made it out. Okay. Um, so anyway, just some thoughts some thoughts on Hawaii. Uh, what's going on out there? If you haven't seen that, I wanted to uh, wanted to share that one with you. Uh, and then uh, I wanted to uh, go into this just just for a little bit, just for a little bit here. What we find. From the, because this is a little bit of a continuation of what we're talking about the last hour, but what we find from the files, and Andy McCarthy has a great piece on this on National Review. Cannot commend it to you enough. Uh, that the redactions that the FBI has been insisting on when it comes to its uh, reporting on all things related to Russia, the redactions are completely and utterly indefensible they are all about cya cover your behind they are all about preventing at a minimum preventing bureaucratic embarrassment and that's not allowed but again this is this falls in the realm of regulation not statutory law right so when the fbi when it comes to what's classified and what's not if it is found that you are, in fact, overclassifying, which is a great way for a bureaucracy to hide its malfeasance from the general public, but if, in fact, you are found to be engaged in that, no one, like, goes to jail or anything. There's not some big, uh, not some big point of reckoning that occurs. No, it's, they just say, oh, yeah, sorry, I guess we, I guess we shouldn't have done that. I guess that uh, that shouldn't have happened. And 
that's where we are right now. When you look at what's in this, and Andy's piece, which I was just mentioning a second ago, was outrageous redactions to the Russia report. And this is specifically from the report that the House, the House Intelligence Committee released where they said they didn't find any Russia collusion. Uh, which, you know, Democrats are ignoring it. They're saying it's all partisan. And, and this whole thing is partisan. I mean, anyone who's taking an objective and adult view of it knows that this is just a giant partisan brawl that a lot of people are pretending is about protecting our democracy. And we know that's all nonsense. But here's what they didn't want that uh, they didn't want to come out. Did the FBI agents really believe this kind of this this uh, connects what we we're talking about before with with Yates and the Logan Act? Did the uh, by the way, Yates said that she was worried about the conduct of Flynn on the phone call with the ambassador. Uh, I take that to be and everyone else that I know and, and think knows what's going on was was that the Logan Act was the excuse to be worried about the conduct. Right. But she was a little cagey with her wording there. Uh, but Yates, I'm sorry, but Flynn is the guy who is waiting to be sentenced for lying to the FBI. And what the House Intelligence Committee report lays out for all of us to see is that it was not, in fact, clear at all that Yates, I'm sorry, I keep doing that, that Flynn, uh, Freudian, we're getting Freudian now, that Flynn lied to those FBI agents. Only later on did that come to the point. Uh, Here's what Andy writes. None of this information, uh, none of this was new information. Indeed, the committee noted that it was drawn from public court filings by special counsel Robert Mueller in connection with Flynn's guilty plea. But there was one intriguing disclosure in the redacted report. Flynn pleaded guilty even though the FBI agents did not detect any deception during Flynn's interview. There was no elaboration on this point, no discussion of why Flynn was interrogated by FBI agents in the first place, no insight on deliberations in the FBI and Justice Department about whether Flynn had deceptive intent, no explanation of how he came to be charged months later by Mueller prosecutors, even though the trained investigators who observed Flynn's demeanor during the interview did not believe he lied. This news that Flynn's interrogators had not sensed deception was not altogether new. It had been reported by then-FBI Director James Comey, who had made this revelation in closed-session testimony before the committee on March 2, 2017. Yet during media interviews to promote his just-released memoir, Comey, who has rebuked the House Intelligence Committee report as an effort to tear down our law enforcement institutions, repeatedly expressed bafflement that anyone could possibly have construed his testimony to imply that the agents believe Flynn had not lied. Uh, Comey told ABC host and Clinton pal George Stephanopoulos, I don't know where that's coming from. That, unless I'm, I said something that people misunderstood, I don't remember ever intending to say that. So my recollection is I never said that to anybody. The now unredacted passages reveal that top Obama, DOJ, and FBI officials provided the committee with conflicting testimony about why the FBI interviewed Flynn as if he were a criminal suspect. You know, can we get some clarity here? How about that? Can we get actual answers from DOJ, FBI, about why they interviewed Flynn? We were led to believe it was Logan Act. A lot of reporting on that. A lot of people in the press saying, yeah, you know, they... they, we're talking about Logan Act violations. They had to go talk to him. 
If it wasn't that, do we get to know what it was? You know, this is where I, I and I've been trying to, to build toward this, to make this case for you. We think of Congress as the oversight authority for our government, and that's true. But the real ultimate oversight authority of federal government actions, the American people, it's us. And we have a, uh, a duty to be told the truth by our government, right? Or the, the, the government has a duty to tell us the truth. Uh, we have an obligation as citizens to perform our own oversight of government. And we can't do that unless we know what's really happening, what's really going on. And what's becoming clear at this point is that the government is very invested in making sure that we do not find out what they have been up to with regard to all of this. You know, on the one hand, they want the authority and the leeway to try and take down a president, which does, does anyone think that that's not what's happening here? Does anyone think that Mueller does not have an incentive and perhaps even in his mind a mission statement of bringing down the Trump presidency one way or another, either by giving fodder to the Democrats for impeachment and removal proceedings or by actually bringing a criminal indictment. Because I would like to hear, if if someone really wants to make that argument publicly in good faith, I would like to hear it. I don't think they do. I don't think they will. And then that leaves us with the following. If that is what's happening, don't we have a right to know why it's happening? Because the truth is right now we don't. The truth is that the DOJ, the FBI, are actively playing hide the football. They're actively stymieing, denying, refusing congressional oversight. And the rest of us are left to just sit here and say, okay, I I guess maybe at some point we'll be told the truth, that this will cease to just be this partisan squabble and we'll, we'll get the answers. I don't think that's the case. I think we're going to be in full-on partisan squabble mode for the foreseeable. Unless we demand to find out more, unless we demand to know what's, uh, what's really going on. Um, this is, it's getting dirtier and dirtier all the time, what's happening here. And the stakes are getting higher, too. They, they are either going to take down this president or the FBI and the DOJ will never really be the same in the eyes of the American people. Never mind the media outlets that have been running with the story for over over a year now. Do we really think it's it's acceptable to go through all of this and, and to find out that there's no there was no Russia collusion, but you know there was like some little tax stuff here or there that maybe they could get somebody on. That's what this country's been we've, we've been put through all this for that reason. It's, it's it's the same thing, by the way, when you look at the possibility of a subpoena of the president of the United States. From Mueller. If there's not a damn good ironclad criminal reason for this, right? A criminal case reason for this. The idea that you would have an inferior executive of the federal government subpoena the commander in chief just because should be unthinkable. He doesn't get to do it just because he's curious. Mueller shouldn't get to do it just because he, you know, just because he wants to know some things here and there. We have not even had the identification of what the crime is that Mueller's investigating. And oh, then there's one more part about all this I think is interesting. What's going on with Russia's uh, with the Russia troll 
troll farm investigation. There's a little bit of a setback. I'm not saying it's definitive, but a little bit of a setback for the Mueller squad on that one. Which Getting some people to say, wait, hold on a second. I thought that was open and shut, right? Trolls are trolling. Got to be able to find them, shut them down. That shouldn't be that difficult. Oh, but it is. But it is, apparently. Details on that. And then also Kim Jong-un versus Trump. Who will the media give credit if there's a historic peace agreement? I think you know the answer to that one, but I'm going to have some fun with it. And uh, Hillary's still whining. That's not a surprise. We can talk about that if we uh, if we find it useful. Um, and uh, we've got a whole lot more, team, so stay right there. We'll be back. We got Kenny in Boston who wants to chat. Hey, Kenny, what's up? Hi, hi uh, Buck. Something's puzzling me, and I want to try to channel your great intellect to delve into your mind and to otherwise pick your brain, as it were. Uh, we're now hearing talk of potential contempt of Congress and even articles of impeachment for Sessions and Rosenstein, perhaps even. So Now, I know that Eric Holder was actually held in contempt of Congress, a previous attorney general. So my somewhat rhetorical question is, does any such action uh, that Congress might take have any bite to the back, uh, especially when it's in relation to the Department of Justice, or is it just really all for show? Also, I'm surprised and saddened that you uh, dislike the Beatles, especially. No, I. I oh, whoa, 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 hold on. Like, let me let me take look, let me take these in reverse order. I don't dislike okay. the Beatles. I just think that we are all forced to worship everything the Beatles ever wrote and performed and recorded because they're the Beatles. And that's just objectively problematic when you listen to some of the songs. I do not dislike and the I Beatles. I agree with that. I, I dislike totally Springsteen. He is objectively the worst, but that's a separate conversation. And I agree with that. Okay, well, see, there we go. On your on your serious policy point, though, about uh, what holding the, the AG in contempt, yeah, the answer, Kenny, is your, it, it's, it, it, as far as I know, it does not have any bite, right? I mean, AG Holder was held in contempt, and he was like, yes, yeah, so what, punks? And he was right. Nothing happened. Uh, and that was on, obviously, a very serious issue having to do with Fast and Furious. Um, but, you know, part of this is the discussion, the back and forth, and so, and what the American people come to know and, and what the truth is. So it's not that it means nothing. It's just, it's for the optics, as they say down here in the swamp, because we're getting swamp-tastic. Does that make oh, sense? Well. Did we lose Kenny? I think we did. Oh, go ahead, oh, sir. I'm here. I'm here. Can you hear me? I'm yeah, here. yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I know. I totally agree with that. Uh, I'm glad to hear about that Beatles thing. And I totally agree. Uh, people who uh, there's people that, you know, they have to like them because they're the best or something like that. And I, don't I mean, like Kenny, that, let, let's uh, let's be real here. Is Obla D Obla Da a good song? Come on. It's OK, but that's that's not a uh, I like to get <laughs> it's the, uh, it's OK. I think you're giving you know, it like like Yellow Submarine, you know. Um, anyway, uh, yes. The best Beatles album is uh, is Abbey Road. I mean, I, I don't think is that even really up for up for debate. I don't know, but that's my that's my. Well, opinion. Sergeant Pepper's is pretty good too. Sergeant Pepper's is pretty good, and actually, uh, Rubber Soul and Revolver aren't so bad either, and a little bit more obscure. But in All any right. case, yeah, I did. I didn't think the Congress had any. Uh, I mean, it's it's sad, you know. DOJ is uh, rogue. Yeah, DOJ. You know, we're supposed to trust. Thank you so much, my friend. We're supposed to trust them, and uh, these days I think the trust gap is growing with each passing day, so that's, that's certainly problematic. 
Um, I what is gosh? I'm, the show is flying by today. Uh, third hour, we'll talk about liberal hypocrisy in the school system, which is always fun. Also, colleges, a, an astounding number of college uh, elite liberal arts colleges have zero Republicans on the faculty. That's all coming up. So stay right there. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Before I get into some more substance here, I uh, just wanted to point out that I, I, I didn't realize what a what a buzzsaw I was walking into when I, I was just hanging out. I went back up to New York City over the weekend. I was hanging out, and I figured I would, you know, sometimes I just want to get the party started. I just want to get the conversation going. That's what I do. You know, I walk by and I'm like, bam, little spikes in the conversation online, in person, wherever I may be. And so I wrote what I thought were, were, this was a a stream of consciousness list. Okay. But I wrote the five best TV characters of all time, according to Buck. That's all. That's all I did. And they were, and yes, in fact, I, I put them in this order. And now maybe it was too much to say characters of all time. I should have said my lifetime because people are saying, you know, what about Mash? And I'm like, well, I, you know, I did, never saw Mash. So, you know, what about? And if some of you are going, boo. Uh, what about other shows that ended in like the '70s? Okay, I don't know those shows, so I, I, I do accept that there are some limits to my, my understanding here. But here are the five best TV characters. As I put it out there, agree or disagree, that is up to you. Number five on my list, Dwight Schrute, The Office. Dwight Schrute is amazing. It's a a, a truly memorable character that manages to carry a heavy comedic load season after season. Number four, Omar from The Wire, the drug dealer, or rather the armed robber who only robs drug dealers, but also lives by a code, a code of the streets. Very interesting character. Number three, Tyrion Lannister from Game of Thrones. Dare I need, or need I say more? (laughs) Dare I need I say more? Radio is hard, folks. Let me tell you, radio radio hard, bucks say. Uh, Number two, and this probably, this was a valid criticism, this probably... Uh, number two, I went with uh, Ron Swanson, Parks and Rec. Probably should have been number one. Greatest TV character of all time. Number one, I went with Coach Eric Taylor from Friday Night Lights. I didn't think this would be controversial. I, almost a, almost an, almost 900 comments. I was going to say 1,000, but that's almost 900 comments in response to this. I, I didn't think I was going to get so lit up, but it did. People put up uh, Frazier from the show Frazier. I, I would accept that to be sure. Um, what else do we have here? Uh, oh, a lot of a lot of people saying Seinfeld. A lot of people saying Jack Bauer, and that's fine. I I, I do it because I want to just get a you know I'm I'm trying to be not provocative, but just you know I want to get I want to get something started. You know I want to see what people have to say about this. We all have opinions on TV shows. We like to share them. It's fun. It's it's engaging in the mind and all that other good stuff. But I have to tell you, there's some people who when I write this, they're like. Who gives you the right to say this? 
You know, they get really mad at me. I'm like, look, I'm not saying that this is objective fact, although my opinions do tend toward the objective fact realm. Uh, clearly, this is an invitation for people to come up with their own versions of the list. Their own. So if you have the five best TV characters of all time already in your head and, and you disagree with my list, you would change my list, you have your own list. Officialteambucket gmail.com or facebook.com slash buck sexton. Let's see what you got. If I see some really interesting lists, I will certainly share them on the air. But yeah, a lot of folks. You know, almost nine almost nine hundred people. Bam, weighing in on that one right away. Uh with their own list, sort of tell me that my list is terrible. I don't think that I mean, Ron Swanson is on is in the top five. I don't care what anybody says. Other than that, I'm I'm pretty uh open to negotiation on this one. Okay, now I've got a, a, comp- a hard turn, which in radio is tough. In TV, sometimes it can be even harder because you're like, I'm going from a happy story to, oh my gosh, a really serious story. Uh, so in, in radio, it's, well, maybe it's actually harder in radio now that I think about it. But so that's why I'm telling you, hard turn into something else because I got breaking news. I got breaking news for you here. Uh, that the Attorney General for the state of New York, Eric Schneiderman, very well known for being a social a show, uh, social justice, climate justice, I think that's a thing, warrior. Uh, he is, uh, ju- this just happened while we're on air, he has been accused by four women of subjecting them to non-consensual physical violence according to the New Yorker. Um, Schneiderman has been one of the most vocal, he's a Democrat, of course, one of the most vocal politicians out there when it comes to the Me Too movement. So he's one of these guys, you know, we're going to, we're going to go after, you know, we're going to go after people that engage in any kind of sexual harassment, sexual abuse. He's been cheering this whole thing on. And now he has been accused by four women of, Sexual violence, I think, is the or yeah, physical violence during sex. Here's what he said. This is Schneiderman's statement to the New Yorker. In quote, in the privacy of intimate relationships, I have engaged in role playing and other consensual sexual activity. I have not assaulted anyone. I have never engaged in non consensual sex, which is a line I would not cross. So he's admitting here to role playing, and women are accusing him of of violence against them during sexual activity. So, am I? What what I take from this is I'm assuming, and maybe I'm maybe I'm reading into this too far. Uh, I'm assuming that Schneiderman is a guy who's into like S and M, right, or bond bondage or whatever. I, I legitimately do not have much in the way of knowledge or expertise on on this subject matter, so I'm trying to just read between the lines here a little bit. That strikes me as interesting because the it, this is kind of an for those of you who are Billions fans, fans of the show Billions on uh, Showtime, big show, very good show, very entertaining. The U.S. attorney in that is a uh, bondage and submission person, you know. Uh, what, what do we say? You know, is into that. He's into that. How about we'll just say it that way. And now here we have currently the attorney general of New York who 
I think is is saying that he's into that, but is now also accused of violence during those sexual acts by four different women, which I, I don't know what this I don't know what the details are. I don't know, you know, I don't know any of that yet. And we'll see. But it is noteworthy because one big Democrat official with I think Maybe not not presidential aspirations quite yet, but certainly thinks of himself as a national. Yeah, I know he's the attorney general for New York, uh, a post once held by Elliot Spitzer. Good job, New York. You're really turning out the best. Uh, Yeah, thank you, John. Well played. Um, So here we have a guy who, though, certainly thinks of himself as a national level Democrat in the conversation with other national level Democrats and is very vocal about how much he supports the me too movement and all that. And turns out at least right now it's all alleged, not proven. Court. We'll have to see, but uh turns out he might have his own me too problems in a pretty big way here. So uh, we'll continue to, uh, to look at this one. Um, I, but that just broke as we were on air. I hadn't seen that story before. So I wanted to share it with you uh, yet. Yet another story of, of, uh, of, at a, at a minimum, alleged high-profile sexual misconduct, one kind or another. Uh, and it seems like uh, Attorney General Schneiderman's into some, at a minimum, into some kind of freaky stuff. But I guess that's, we'll find out more as we find out more. Uh, 844-900-BUCK if you want to call in. Oh, I've got to tell you about the Kim and the, tr- oh, wait, I've got a few things I've left on the cutting room floor right now. Uh update on where the Mueller remember that Mueller indictment of all those troll farms the Russian troll farms kind of an interesting update on that maybe we'll handle that when we come back but also where the Trump Kim Jong-un summit stands and also who do we think the media is more likely to credit with anything good that comes out of that summit which is another way of saying when the media looks at Trump and Kim Jong-un who do they find more detestable you know the answer to that already, but we might discuss that in some greater detail here. So uh, stay right there, team. Team, I just did some uh, speed reading of the New Yorker piece that uh, I referenced about Attorney General, New York State Attorney General Schneiderman in the break, and... Uh, Wow. Uh, a lot of detail. This is it's a New Yorker piece. Is, it, is this Ronan Farrow? Yeah, Ronan Farrow was one of it's him and Jane. Uh, Jane Mayer wrote this piece. Um, and uh, I went I went through it as fast as I could. It's a pretty long piece. And uh, yeah, he's uh, ooh, Schneiderman's in trouble. The, the, the real accusations here are that, you know, he's he likes to be violent with women, that he that he would hit women that he was having relationships with. So um so that means uh, he's a uh, scum, but uh, we'll see what ends up, ha- again, assuming the allegations are true, which we will find out more, I'm sure. But there's a lot of detail in this, and the sourcing claims uh, multiple multiple individuals corroborating it. And then on top of all that, not only does it allege that Schneiderman um, enjoys hitting women, uh, he also would threaten them based on his post as a senior uh, law enforcement official. You know, I could have your phones tapped. I could have you followed. Uh, one of them even says that he would, th- it said if they, uh, 
you know, if she ever left him, he, he threatened her, um, threatened her safety, you know, so Schneiderman is, uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I'm, I'm going to assume that unless he's going to, unless he's going to try to claim that all this is, is completely fabricated, which would be uh, possible, but quite a position to take. I, I think he's, he's done for, um, you know, and if he hits women as he should be. So I, I did look into this a bit, a bit more, and uh, wanted to just give you that up because it was it was breaking news as we we're on the air, and so I said, "Hold on a second, what's really happening here?" Uh, another individual caught in this uh, caught in this Me Too moment that, at a minimum, might end his career. I don't think he's going to face any criminal charges for this, from what I've seen. I don't think anything would be under the statute, and they couldn't prove it anyway. But uh, his political career is over. All right. Um, gosh, where was I? Oh yeah, a, a few. So, so switching gears here. I remember, what was it? A few days ago, I tweeted out. I'm trying to find it right now, so I can give you the actual specific, uh, actual specific quote that I used. And it was basically, you know, that that six months ago they were saying, oh yeah, media six months ago, Trump's tweets are going to start a nuclear war. Media six months from now, North Korea always wanted to make a deal. Trump deserves no credit for it. I made that. I, I joked around about that. I mean, it's mostly true, but I, I was joking around with it because I think that just the media dishonesty when it comes to their coverage of Trump. I think because they say Trump lies, and he does have some tendencies to uh, what's the word? What's the way to say this? He can be loose with the facts. I think, as some have said but on, on not particularly important stuff, generally. But that doesn't absolve the media of their responsibility as people that are in the business of, supposedly the business of truth-telling from telling the truth. But on this uh, North Korea summit, as it's coming up here, um, I think it's quite clear that they are preparing for what they view as the worst possible eventuality here, uh, which would be that Trump is actually successful. <laughs> there, there is a, a deep and abiding concern among members of uh, the media that Trump will, in fact, get somewhere with his uh, North Korea overtures. And so they're already, I, I saw, I'm trying to find this piece right now. It was just, it just happened. But I think it was in the Washington Post. Who deserves the credit if this works out? Kim Jong-un? or Trump. And you're starting to see pieces about how, well, you know, you know, it's uh, Kim Jong-un. Okay, here we go. I found it. I want to make sure. This is an opinion piece, the Washington Post, but I just want to say this is already out there. Should Kim get the credit for the Korean detente by David Ignatius, one of the uh, one of the most celebrated columnists in the Washington Post and one of the most celebrated com- columnists in the whole Mainstream media establishment. Oh, wow. Uh, they're already setting the groundwork, folks. I'm t- you'll see more of this. It'll move from the opinion section to the front page news analysis section to just the hard news section, right? There'll, there'll be an evolution of this storyline that if, if, in fact, the Trump administration manages to get a major ground-shaking breakthrough with North Korea, there will be a huge effort 
to say that this was really the that this was really the Kim dynasty's doing that Kim set the groundwork. Kim's really more of a humanitarian than we've ever thought in the past. You know, North Korea is not quite the totalitarian dictatorship that we've all been led to believe. There's there's some little offshoots of civil society here and there and a moderating influence from the latest member of the of the Kim regime here with Kim Jong Un. I'm t- it's going to be so crazy, but I'm telling you it's going to happen. Now, maybe maybe the summit goes nowhere. Maybe this doesn't actually turn into much of anything. Uh, and, 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 if, and if Trump fails, then we already know they're going to say, oh, he's a, he's a buffoon and it was always doomed to failure and all the rest of it. But I would just note that they need to start seeding the field now with, well, but, you know, they need to hedge their bets here a little bit. Maybe if things go really well, it was Kim. It was Kim Jong Un that that brought us to this. Maybe if this is a historic breakthrough and worthy of a Nobel Peace Prize, and the media has to choose who is more, who is a more deserving recipient of that Nobel Peace Prize, Trump or Kim Jong Un. And again, I think this is still low probability that we're even going to be in this situation. But if they have to pick, we all know they would much rather hand over that Nobel Peace Prize to a guy who until now has been presiding over the most oppressive, militaristic, and authoritarian state on the planet. That tells you a lot about what they really think of Trump. I mean, it's, woo, it's out there. Um, Like I said, we're going to talk about the uh, hypocrisy of liberals when it comes to schools coming up, which is going to be quite a topic. And then also uh, college professors are not Republican in numbers that will blow your mind. Coming up. Nine Line Apparel is a veteran-owned and operated patriotic lifestyle brand, and they're a give-back company, too. So Nine Line is proud to announce a partnership with NASCAR driver Jeffrey Earnhardt to give back to the children of our nation's fallen. From now through May 9th, go to NineLineApparel.com to get their Remember the Fallen Memorial Day shirt. And with each shirt purchase, you have the option of submitting the name of a fallen soldier. And these heroes' names will cover Jeffrey Earnhardt's car at the Coca-Cola 600 over Memorial Day weekend in Charlotte. The charity that Nine Line and Jeffrey Earnhardt are partnering with is Angels of America's Fallen, whose goal is to support the children of those lost due to military service, whether in combat as a result of injuries or suicide related to PTSD. Support our fallen heroes. Go to www.9lineapparel.com to get this exclusive Memorial Day t-shirt and all of their other patriotic apparel. Again, 9lineapparel.com. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to Hour 3 of the Buck Sexton Show team. If you want to call in, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Also, don't forget, we take your messages, thoughts, comments at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Liberal hypocrisy is one of the, the, uh, the primary threads that we run through this show on a regular basis. Right? It's one of, the, one of the topics we return to time and time again. Because I think, as I have stated... That liberal hypocrisy is a defining characteristic of the progressive mind. 
that to believe the things they believe, it is only possible to do so based on what they know their own personal actions would be, their own personal preferences are, if they create separate tracks. You know, the, the basic way of saying this is do as I say, not as I do. That's a, that's a mantra for progressives. That's actually a, a central theme of the progressive left. And the issue of school choice, which is something that the left is so energized on. I mean, the leftist activists just want to rip anyone's head off who pushes school choice is such a perfect example of this. You know, they hate Betsy DeVos, this woman who's a billionaire who spent her whole adult life, or at least last couple of decades of it, trying to help underprivileged, predominantly black and Hispanic children, but just underprivileged children as a whole, have a better shot at a good education. The left hates her. She is in that same category of, of high disdain on the left as Scott Pruitt, of course, because the EPA stuff, um, as uh, Zinke, just because he's like an alpha male former Navy SEAL that, you know, they don't like that either. Uh, he's the interior secretary. But on the issue of school choice, we keep running this experiment and seeing the results, and they, the left won't change their tune on it. And, and I return to this situation in New York City, and it's really interesting. Uh, and, and for those of you who are like, buckets, New York's not my problem. Yeah, but just remember this, because I assure you, it is only a matter of time if you have kids uh, before you deal with something like this in your school district, your school board. I, I assure you that progressive groupthink from the Department of Education at the very top in D.C. on down, is affecting the uh, majority of schools in your state and and probably in, in your county. Uh, and, and maybe you're lucky if you're at one school where you know the, you know the teachers are great, but you're lucky because most of the rest of the country that has their kids in public school is dealing with some version of this or another. So the New York City situation is really just a an exemplar of what's going on elsewhere. So you have this push for diversity in schools, right? You have this push for diversity in public schools because, and I'm not getting into any of the underlying discussions on this because that would be a whole other that would be a whole other segment, whole other show, really. We don't have time for it today, but the schools that are majority and almost entirely in some cases white are very high performing very high test grades very low disciplinary incidences etc in schools that have a higher proportion on average right there's this this is in general there's there's harlem success academy where you have uh young black and hispanic students who are outperforming their uh caucasian and asian peers on state testing in math no less right i mean an area where uh, it's generally really hard to show improvements in the test scores. Um, but I'm talking about it in the aggregate, right? Overall, the higher percentage of white students in a school, the higher performing the school is within the public school system in New York. I can't speak to elsewhere in the country. We're talking about in New York. And what you find, though, is that in, in a few of these schools, they don't want to be a part of this diversity push and there are schools that are in districts that are very, very left wing. 
And this one school in particular, the Center School, written about here in the New York Post, has the children of Samantha B. You know, like full frontal, like she does that show where it's supposed to be comedy, but it's really bad political commentary. Her, she's just not a talented comedian. She's just not funny. She's just not funny. And there's a whole other segment, a whole other discussion to be had here on the uh, the standards for women comedians these days versus their male counterparts. But I'll I'll leave that I'll leave that aside for now. Yeah, she just like does a show. Where she's really oh Samantha B was the one who aired this segment of the young man at um uh I'm, oh gosh I'm blanking on the name a CPAC. I've never been to CPAC as a as a, a conservative media person, which I think is interesting. I only went on my own time many years ago in my twenties just to check it out. I've never been invited to CPAC. I don't know why. <laughs> It, it is what it is, folks. Seems kind of strange to me, but that's that's cool. They can do whatever they want. Um, anyway, uh, but the the young man at CPAC who they said had a Nazi haircut who actually was battling cancer. Remember that? That was Samantha B's show. That was Samantha B's show. So she's hilarious. Louis C.K., um, he of let me expose my man parts to women I work with and do things to them in front of them. That guy? Yeah. And Cynthia Nixon, uh, who is from Sex and the City. Uh, she plays the lawyer, the kind of red-haired lawyer in Sex and the City. She's now running for, John, is it governor of New York? Nobody thinks Cynthia Nixon can win because Cuomo is a genius. Uh, but yeah, Cynthia, Cynthia Nixon is, is going to be uh, running against him. Uh, but their children all go to this center school. And here's what's really interesting. They've played all these games at this Upper West Side, Manhattan, New York City school to make sure that uh, academic diversity and, yes, desegregation don't affect their school. And when you start to look into this a little bit, you see, oh, I see. So they're just looking for all the loopholes they can. And remember, this is a school that is drawing from the children of very wealthy, very connected celebrities. People that have real, you know, real wasta, real juice. But they don't, they don't want to adopt these policies that they're making all the other schools do, though. Uh, they're supposed to give 25% of admissions priority to students scoring at the, at the lowest levels on English and math tests. So this school... Uh, it's supposed to, like all the other schools, think about this. You've got schools that are doing really well. Now, under New York City rules, you have to take a quarter of the worst students at grade level and put them into these schools, have an admissions priority. So they, they think, and there's, by the way, almost no evidence really to support this, that taking the most underperforming students and putting them into really good schools is going to bring up the underperformers. But you know what? They don't even care if it brings them up. It's just all about this is what's fair. This is diversity. This is a social justice issue more than an education issue. But this school in particular has a loophole. It doesn't admit students in the sixth grade. It starts admitting them in the fifth grade. And it did this specifically so that it can have the right under city regulations to pick whichever students it wants to take this is a public school by the way 
So, you know, it's very clear what's going on here. All these other schools take uh, take students starting in the in the sixth grade is when this selection process is supposed to happen for these public schools. Um, and yet you have this one school that they just don't want to, they don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. And uh, here you have one parent. I'm sorry. Here you have the 83-year-old co-founder of the school uh, saying, or or, or, or parents saying of her that she's been able to run the school the way she wanted. Parents are saying here, they wish it was more integrated. I wish they took many more low-income kids and kids who weren't performing well on the test. That's what parents say to the papers. And yet that never happens. The school doesn't change. Could change its policies tomorrow. Doesn't change its policies. Oh, gee, you mean that a school that has parents who have connections politically to City Hall and to the media gets to create a little enclave of we're just going to have a school of high performers and everybody else gets to just uh, be part of this social experiment of putting the worst students possible into the into the good schools? Oh, yeah, that's right. That's this is the classic liberal mentality at play. When it, and, when, and they're using kids as pawns in this process, and they're sacrificing people's futures. So remember, liberal hypocrisy is on full display, especially when it comes to educating their own kids versus educating your kids. You need to make sure you have the best information at your fingertips possible if you're going to operate your business at maximum efficiency. That's where Global Verification Network comes in. They are the only dual-certified, veteran-owned background investigation and vetting company. There are a lot of people in this space, but you know what? There's only one dual-certified, veteran-owned background investigation company, and they're also federally certified as a veteran-owned small business. On top of that, all the work is done here in the States. Global Verification is headquartered in Chicago. They've got risk mitigation experts who will work with you, whether you're a startup or a Fortune 100 company. None of the data or client information you give them is ever offshored. And when you call them, you get a person to answer any questions you have. Call 877-695-1179. That's 877-695-1179. Or go to MyGVN. That's MyGVN.com. Come back. I've got a whole lot more to talk to you about, team, so stay with me. I like to keep it absolutely on the straight and narrow with you. I like to be as honest with you as I can, team. And so that's why there are some places where my, my inner statist comes out. You know, there are some areas of life where all of a sudden, liberty-loving, even libertarian-leaning buck is completely overtaken by just just make it stop. I don't care who does it in the government. I don't care what they have to do. Just make it stop. Uh, some examples of this, if I may. Um, I, and, and some of you are going to get very mad at me for this, and that's okay, but Government saying no smoking allowed in you know public accommodations like restaurants, things like that. Yeah, I'm 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 in, as a non-smoker, I'm in favor of that. Is that free market based? Is it fair? You know what? Probably not. And I don't really care because I want what I want. See, but it's important to know when you're when you're taking that mindset. It's important to know when you're letting your little progressive tantrum throwing monster out, who just wants the government to solve his problems for him, right? Uh, do I like it when now 
we can get into a whole discussion as to whether some municipal regulations over things like noise are in fact overreach or if they're completely covered under police powers, which are delegated to the states, right? There are some places where I'm not sure I'm being uh, that status, but nonetheless, I like I like a bit of uh, of statist intrusion. So smoking is one of them. Uh, but here's a time when I would like to see the massive Leviathan intelligence community that we have and law enforcement community at the federal level just crush people. And it's on robocalls. I freaking hate robocalls. Uh, I, for some reason, and I'm all, oh, by the way, please don't, I, as my, I love you all, don't send me an email that says, Buck, have you considered being on the do not call registry? Home slice, I practically invented the do not call registry. I'm all about the do not call registry. I've, I'm on it. I've checked and rechecked. I got a list. I'm checking it twice. I'm the Santa Claus of anti-robocalls. Like, I just, and I, I want to spread the good word out there to as many people as I can to stop this nonsense. But it's getting a lot worse. It's getting a lot worse. This is a problem that I, I would like federal intervention on. Because it seems like a small thing. It seems like a small thing until, I don't know, maybe maybe you're doing a uh, podcast interview and all of a sudden you get a phone call on your landline and you're like, who has my landline number? It must be important. Maybe it's a family member and you pick it up and it's, hello, would you like to go on a cruise? Because you've won our competition. Just give us your bank account routing information and your email and your home address and we promise everything will be fine. Some of you, by the way, know that my impersonation of one of those robocalls is phenomenal. Because that's exactly, you've probably even gotten that robocall. Hello, it's Susan from the call center. You're like, no, stop. You know? Oh, there's another one that goes, because here's what happens. And and I like, I want to throw things whenever this happens. But there's one of the robocalls, one of the better known ones, where you, um, uh, you answer and there's silence for a second. You know, they're trying to get really tricky. So you go, hello? Silence. And then, oh, I'm sorry. I had to put my headset on. So I'm so happy to talk to you. You're like, oh, now we have the head fake with the headset to get me to actually engage with this robocaller. You know, it, the robocalls are the worst. And there was an article in the New York Times over the weekend about how there were three point billion, three point billion robocalls in April alone. Think about that. Okay. This is a pestilence. This is an auditory plague. And, you know, it, there, for some reason, and, I, and I, kind of, I read this piece and I'm like, yeah, they're saying it's tough to track people down and whatever. The FCC, the, the FCC exists, you would think, to handle things like this. If I give my information, you know, to somebody, I do not expect that they can call me for the rest of eternity without any consequence, even after I've asked them to stop. And email went through this for a while. I mean, there was a time, and some of you remember this, this is back in the, you've got mail, like back in that era of the internet, that there were concerns that email spammers were just going to kind of overwhelm the system and overtake things whereby all of a sudden you'd have email spam filling up your box so much that it was going to, you know, and then they had to come up with filters and all this other stuff. We don't have any good filters for phones. They're getting around the do not call registry 
and there's all these different robocall centers that have been set up. A lot of them are running scams, I would note. And I just want to know what the federal government is doing. I mean, I don't like to make it always, you know, this big, you know, hey, you know, why are they looking at Russia collusion when it could be over here dealing with the FCC, you know, and making the robocalls go away. Hey, I'm not saying it's that that's although I am, I suppose, saying that because I just did. But there, the federal government has tremendous resources. And, and usually, you know, my favorite analogy here, it's the blind giant, right? The blind giant doesn't get a hold of you. You're fine. If it gets a hold of you, you're, you're done. You're, you're screwed. Somehow, the FCC, in, in the era of digital information and everything leaves a footprint and everything can be tracked, they can't shut this stuff down. I, I would like them to take this is my, like I said, my inner statist is, is joining in the fray here. Uh, I would like there to be some massive fines handed out to robocallers like crippling, destroy their business and bankrupt the principal's fines because they are just first of all, a lot of them are running scams. So they're straight up trying to trying to uh, defraud people of of their hard earned savings. But on top of that, think about the quality of life hit that we're all taking here. When now they call my cell phone, they call my landline. Hello. I do not want a robocall ever. In fact, I have a personal rule where if I get a robocall from a company, unless there's a really good reason, I do not want to do business with that company anymore. So it's like I keep a hit list in reverse here. Anyone who reaches out to me and they're like, you know, Hey, would you like to buy this timeshare? Not only is the answer no, but whoever you're affiliating yourself with in this call, I will never do business with again. That all said, the market's not enough here because the incentives are so strong for this continued harassment that it's not going to stop. So I want, as I was saying, I want to unleash my inner statist and crush the robocallers. If they, if they can track down Russian troll farms, and and Facebook sock puppets and all this other stuff that, quite honestly, I didn't even see during the election. And I'm being, I'm just being honest with you. I didn't even see any of that stuff. But if they can spend millions of dollars of federal resources to do that, how about they shut down the billions of robocalls that all of us listeners are probably getting? As you can see, I'm a one-man crusade here. I'm trying to end robocalls. I'm trying to end car alarms, backup alarms for cars and vehicles. Buck's got a full plate. Got a full plate. All right, stay with me, team. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. The National Association of Scholars does not sound like something that you're going to get a particularly exciting article from, right? Sounds like a bunch of dudes who sit around, and ladies, not to mansplain this. We're like, excuse me, I've got a scholarship to discuss with my national association, and uh, it's going to be exciting. We're going to talk about uh, peer-reviewed journal articles, and it's going to be amazing. Hey, you know, they're all like comparing pocket protectors and who's got the oldest patches on their on the sleeves of their... Uh, their 30-year-old tweed jacket, right? That's what you figure. But there's actually a really important piece out here from the National Association of Scholars that I wanted to bring to your attention. 
It has to do with the political affiliations of elite liberal arts college professors. Let me preface this for just a moment, if I can. I like talking about the college stuff here because, one, it's fun. Because Antifa on campus and all the wokeness and all the social justice hysteria is just interesting subject matter. But also, as we have seen, and I think it's irrefutable at this point, campus culture turns into American culture very quickly, or at least liberal American culture. And they are the laboratories for some of the craziest, most progressive ideas. So when you see things on a campus, things like cultural appropriation, it's only a matter of time before that is then something you're dealing with in the workplace. When you're you know, having lunch with friends and that annoying friend of a friend you don't like shows up, or when you're watching TV or the news, cultural appropriation starts getting used as a term. I mean, just even the popularity of words like cisgender, I've told you before, I like to think that I have a pretty robust vocabulary, although people who use the word robust too much tend to be people who have run out of good words to use. Uh, But I had never heard the word cisgender until three years ago, I think, maybe four years ago. Never even heard it. And now I'm hearing it all the time. And cisgender really just means gender. But they've created this whole this whole other categorization where it's oh that's your biological gender oh you're like male versus female oh anyway college campus culture is important for all these reasons and that's why when i see this article in the national academy of or national association of scholars excuse me sir that you have 39% of colleges in this very important uh, sample, which I'll get into what the sample is in a second, 39% of American colleges have not a single full-time, tenure-track, Republican PhD on the staff. My friends, that is almost half. And we're looking at about 40% here. Roughly 4 out of 10 of the top... uh, 51 of the 66 top liberal arts colleges in U.S. News and World Report. Uh, I mean, this is crazy. 78.2% of the academic departments in the sample in this study have either zero Republicans or so few as to make no difference. I got to tell you, I thought it would, I thought at most of these schools, that you'd at least have a handful, that you have almost 40% of these schools that are in the top tier of liberal arts colleges. Uh, Not a single Republican. This is just crazy. And you got to figure this is affecting future generations in terms of their politics, but just also what they're learning, how they're learning it, in ways that we can only begin to measure. And anyone who starts to say things like, well, liberals are smarter or liberals get degrees and that's why they that, that's, that's just laughable. There's no way that half the country is Republican, which it is. And 40 percent of the top liberal arts colleges in the, in the country have not a single a single Republican Ph.D. on their faculty. And I, I guess maybe it shouldn't be so surprising to me. I I was the. Uh, advisee, I don't know if that's really a word uh, of. Hadley Arkey's at at Amherst College, where he was the only at least outspoken conservative on the whole faculty. He was shunned by many of his peers. 
he had to take offices where the dean's offices were because the political science department was so hostile to him. He was a tenured professor who was not allowed to. This was, you know, almost 20 years ago now. It's kind of crazy when I say that out loud. Uh, but he was a tenured professor and it was so hostile he couldn't even keep his office uh, where it was. So, you know, we, we need to pay attention to these things and, and action would be nice here. It's one thing to just point it out, but I think that we can see this is a lot more than just a, well, you know, maybe this needs to be addressed. Oh, no. This absolutely needs to be addressed. Uh, it absolutely does. So how? Well, that's a tougher question. And I'm not sure I really have all the answers for it. Uh, but it's uh, it's only getting worse. The echo chamber effect is only getting stronger, and I can't imagine what it's like for some of these kids who are showing up at, as freshmen or first years because, you know, don't want to be gender normative or anything like that, uh, or gender... I don't even know what the term would be for why you can't say freshman. I don't know, mansplaining or something? I'll ask I'll ask some snowflakes to explain it to me. We got uh, roll call here in uh, in just a minute. Stay there. Buck, it's time for roll call. DJ Buck is spinning records because he plays with records still. You know, it's amazing. DJs actually actually just press play on a playlist now. I've talked to friends about this. I think it's probably, in terms of labor and difficulty, the best job in the world, dollars in versus uh, versus effort, to sit there and press play on a predetermined playlist, right? That's just, how does it get any easier than that? You're not going to make any mistakes. I'm just saying, uh, if you can be a celebrity DJ, go for it. Now, I have other friends who are struggling DJs. That is not as much fun. Uh, it is not as awesome to be making 200 bucks to play someone's Sweet 16 as it is to make 20, 30, 50, 100, $500,000 for a single session. That actually does happen, believe it or not, as for DJs, folks, they're not even playing any instruments. It's crazy. John, you know I'm not making this up. It's totally true. Um, all right, Amy, first up in our roll call, facebook.com slash bucksexton if you want to send us stuff. Amy just has a super cute pup uh, that she sent us a photo of. Looks kind of like a miniature dingo, and uh, I don't think she actually tells me anything more about it other than that. But thank you for sharing lots of photos, team, of your cute canine and other furry friends uh it's great to see and i very much appreciate it and uh, thank you amy next up we get adam who writes on friday you mentioned aquaman by the way he's part of dc's justice league not the avengers shields high uh well adam uh you are correct sir i stand corrected you know i wish i could get into the the whole comic book movie scene recently because i like comic books and i like well-executed comic book movies like, I think Iron Man 1 is a great movie. Uh, I actually mentioned Blade recently on the show, and Wesley Snipes, uh, I think I did at least. Did I, did I talk about Blade, John? I, I did, thank you, yeah. And how, and how Wesley thought he could get away without paying $40 million in taxes, apparently. Uh, so, this is uh, 
this is somebody who I'm open to. Oh, Deadpool, very good for what it was, I thought, right? I mean, there's good, there's good comic book movies out there. But I'm sorry, I just think some of these, like, Avenger, Crossover, DC, Infinity War, they're just a mess. I saw one recently with Miss Molly, and it, it just, there was no plot, there was nothing that happened. They're like these weird mutant flies, I guess, that were trying to eat people. John, do you know what I'm talking about? I'm not even sure which one it was. It was Avengers something or other. Not the most recent one. It was the one before that. There was no plot. I don't even know what was going on. It's just a lot of special effects and noise. Anyway. Uh, also, I'm a little jealous that some of those guys are my age. And uh, whatever. I'm going to blame it on the HGH. How about that? Because they're, they're more jacked than ever. I'm like, I thought I got to. I thought I could fade into dad bod obscurity here. But there's like, oh, I'm Captain America. I'm so Jack. He's like that Captain America guy is my age. Uh, funny, actually, we transition here to Monica. I don't like calling it a dad bod. I prefer calling it a father figure. As always, Shields High. I didn't plan that, but that was perfect timing, Monica. Thank you so very much for the kind note. Uh, Brian, next up here, he writes, Buck, laughed out loud about your Penn Station Newark early exit. As I pulled the exact same thing a couple years back while on my way up from Philly on the Northeast Regional Amtrak. Don't feel too bad, and honestly, it makes zero sense anyhow to have two Penn Station stops in immediate vicinity to one another. I mean, exactly. You're going to have a Penn Station that's like a 10-minute train ride from a Penn Station? I'm not saying that I deserve no ridicule here because, of course, I'm telling you about it as a form of self-ridicule, so I don't make the same incredibly stupid move ever again. The funniest part, though, was when I walked out as, as a lifelong New York City uh, resident. I walked out in Newark, and I'm like, huh, New York's really changed. It's really like, you know, streets are looking real real different. I don't know. It doesn't look like New York to me. Uh, that was part of it that I can't explain. Anyway, I agree. There's too many Penn stations. It seems nuts. Uh, next up here, uh, Erica, it seems whenever you plan to spend extra time on roll call, you tend to wander off into a buck babble. Damn, John, that's cold. That's cold. Yeah. John, John thinks it's good. They, people got to keep me in check. You know, I can't like wander outside the lines. I do read, I read all the, there are, uh, there are plenty of, of emails and Facebook messages that I get. I, I'm not going to say I read them all on air where people are like, hey, this you were doing really well. This segment did not like. I'm like, okay, all right. I take it on board. Uh, sometimes I go in the corner and cry a little bit, but I take it on board. Uh, next up in our roll call. But Erica, you're correct. The moment I think that I have more room to run, the buck goes wild. Uh, so yeah, I just thought I'd, I'd put that out there. put that out there for you. And now we'll get back into the roll call. Timothy writes, Shields High Buck, just heard the awesome movie quote stuff on the podcast. Is it kosher to hit you with quotes ex post facto? I hope so. Don't hit me with them negative waves so early in the morning. If people don't like it, I suppose you'll have to tell them to go out with all they got and just win one for the gipper. If you veto this, then everything is proceeding as I have foreseen. Shields High. Is that the quote, John? Was he... Don't hit me with them negative waves so early in the morning. I don't know. I got nothing. You can hit the buzzer on that one. Yeah, you can send me quotes, and I'm honest about it. I'm, I'm not going to cheat. If I don't know it, I, I don't know it. 
Uh, yeah, there we go. So, thank you. Hannah from Israel writes the following. Buck, you had me bend over crying tears of laughter with the potato peeler story. Your Scottish accent is spot on, and you were simply hilarious. If you can be robbed by a guy with a potato peeler, I'm not sure you can be helped. You made my day. Uh, well, thank you, Hannah. I appreciate it. I'll, I'll bring the Scottish into things a little bit more. Uh, it's, it's just a tough one, because when your Scottish goes wrong... It goes wrong in a big way. It's not like uh, you were close on the accent, right? Uh, it's not like Dana Carvey, or I'm sorry, Mike Myers, rather, who back in the day uh, would sometimes switch from doing a German accent to an English accent, and nobody would notice on SNL. He'd be like, oh, yes, guten Tag, my name is Dieter, and I'm here to talk to you about many things. You're like, wait, you just switched. You're not German. You're a British dude. Another thing to note. I saw Johnny Depp getting a little bit of trouble. People are saying Johnny Depp's having something of a meltdown. I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell you a universal truth right now. This is a buckism, my friends. You see this with Johnny Depp. You can never trust an American who thinks he's British and wants to be French. It's a rule. It's a rule, and there are no exceptions. And that is Johnny Depp. So no matter what happens now, I'm just saying, you know about the buck rule, and that's all you need to know. Uh, next up here, Brandon, love the show and shields high. I've been a listener since the two hour Monday through Friday shows at the blaze. The first episode I listened to was the battle of Stalingrad episode. Is it possible to put some of the old history deep dives like Stalingrad, uh, and Vlad the impaler on the shields high podcast? Since you're already, you've already done the work for them. Keep up the great work. And your Bernie Sanders voice is my favorite. Brandon, you're a man of great taste. I appreciate you writing the note. Um, and yes, uh, all the previous episodes of Shields High will eventually find their way to the podcast, uh, the Shields High podcast. It's just a question of timing. I've, I've got a few things. So the, the plan, just so you all know, is to start a kind of weekly, like, I think it's going to be middle of the week podcast. We're going to call, uh, the Freedom Hut with Buck Sexton. And that's just going to be a little separate thing where I can just let it loose and have some fun with you all. And it'll be some news commentary. It'll be some accents. It'll be maybe some guests. It'll be kind of a, uh, a grab bag of awesome that we're going to do in addition to the radio show. That, that's the plan for right now. So we got to get that launched. Next week, I'm not trying to delay this. I promise I'm just being told this as I go along. Next week, I can tell you all about my exciting uh, career maneuver or move. Uh, the reason I'm down here as a part-time swamp resident right now is gonna. I'm going to tell you all the details next week, and uh, it'll be fun because there'll be some press attached to it and some other good things. Uh, but we're going to be doing a lot more, a lot more of what we do here in the hut. That I can promise you. And yeah, there you go. Um, and I, I will get Shield Tie back in the action. Uh, William, last one here, Buck. Shield Tie, you're awesome. Best radio show in the history of radio shows. I like to lobby on behalf of the terror. Just wait until it starts getting crazy. Give terror a chance. All right, William. Uh, first of all, thank you for being so very kind and telling me you like the show. It means a lot. As I always tell people, you know, radio is the heaviest lift of anything you can do in the media world because it's just on you and you care so much about your audience and you respect their time so much 
that no matter how you feel, no matter what kind of mood you're in, you got to show up, you got to do it, you got to, you got to, you know, carry the show the way you're supposed to. Uh, so I'd really do appreciate all the, all the kind words about it. It's not like it ever is, uh, lost on me at all. In fact, quite the contrary. It keeps me motivated, keeps me going. And as to the terror, all right, William, on your say so this week, I'll go back and check it out. I tried to get Miss Molly to watch Boondock Saints recently. I'm just letting you guys know she was having none of it. All right, I'm going to roll into uh, the end of the show here in uh, just a moment, but I've got to tell you about one of our fantastic sponsors. It's really important to make sure that you give back to those who have served this country, and Nine Line Apparel is a veteran-owned and operated patriotic lifestyle brand that really believes in that maximum. They are a give-back company, and they have announced a partnership with NASCAR driver Jeffrey Earnhardt to give back to the children of our nation's fallen. So up until May 9th, if you go to NineLineApparel.com, you can get a T-shirt that says, Remember the Fallen, and with each shirt purchased, you have the option of submitting the name of a fallen soldier, and these heroes' names will cover Jeffrey Earnhardt's car at the Coca-Cola 600 over Memorial Day weekend in Charlotte. The, The charity, by the way, is... Angels of America's Fallen. That's what Nine Line and Jeffrey Earnhardt are partnering with, and they support the children of those lost to military service. So please check them out. Go to NineLineApparel.com to get this exclusive Memorial Day t-shirt. Again, NineLineApparel.com. With that, we're closing out the hut today, team. Shields high.